You are listening to a Core Awareness Seminar by Liz Cook. Her website is www.coreawareness.com. That's C-O-R-E awareness.com. Please note that Core Awareness is a trademark signature of Liz Cook, her workshops, seminars, books, and CDs. The information presented in the seminar is in no way intended as a substitute for receiving professional medical care. The design and purpose of the seminar is to provide information and to simply educate. The author and publisher shall have neither liability nor responsibility to any person or entity with respect to any loss, damage, or injury caused or alleged to be caused directly or indirectly by the information, suggestions, explorations, or exercises contained within the seminar or written in response to the seminar. The author is not a medical authority, and she is not qualified to diagnose or prescribe any therapy. The information is simply her personal opinion. Please seek medical care for whatever condition you may have. I want to welcome everyone. This is Liz Cook at Core Awareness, and today I have Dr. Susan Urich, who's the founder and executive director of Earth Fire Institute, a wildlife sanctuary and retreat center. Susan is a licensed psychologist and biologist and educator, and I would say one of her goals, maybe a major goal, is to widen the circle of conversation about conservation to include uh, the voices of all living beings. So welcome, Susan. I really Thank appreciate you. you being here. So I want to um, start out by uh, saying that I titled this Stalking Wild because I work with the SOAS, which is our uh, core tissue that's very primal and part of the reptilian brain and is very responsive to our animal nature, so to speak. And then the animals are calling us to consult. So I feel that this is really about our deep, deep sensibility in connection to all species and our interconnectedness and what we can learn from this interconnectedness. So I want to begin by kind of get, letting people know you a little bit because I think it's intriguing that you're a psychologist and a biologist. I think that's just a, a beautiful blending. So could you speak to what that means to you, like how that has, has been part of your process? As long as I can remember, there are a few things. One is I always loved nature and animals, just intuitive, immediate love. And then when I started being able to think, really, I was simply fascinated by that interface between animals and humans. The You might call it the reptilian brain or uh, subconscious, or what is that place where, we're, where we've shifted from one into the other? So I was interested in human consciousness and consciousness, and then interested in the natural world, and they're both they're interrelated. Also, we are biological creatures. We are psychological creatures. So, for us to understand ourselves, it's useful to understand all those different levels. 
Yeah, I think it's great what you've done. I, I Relating through kinship with all living beings to me is really vital. It's part of the work that I do because I'm really interested in um, developing our kinesthetic intelligence. Mm. So our sensibility, something that in our culture we're not really focused on. You know, we, we're very focused on the intellectual development of our, our minds or our brains. And maybe, maybe some people are, are interested in a, what we call emotional intelligence. But our kinesthetic intelligence has really decreased as mm. we've gone indoors, as we've disconnected ourselves and isolated ourselves and found that somehow movement, uh, except in some repetitive pattern, is about all the sensory stimulation we get. Children are, are literally, you know, not on uneven ground, for example, and so lose their sensibility of connecting with the physical world, with Mother Earth or, um, and our earthly sensibility. So our kinship with all living being seems to be getting even more separated. So in returning to that, I'd love for you to speak about some of the things that you want our listeners to understand about the initiatives that you're proposing, because to me they're really interlinked with this waking up our own living system, waking up to what is really going on and our connection to everything else. Well, the first thing I'd like to say is you say knowing through kinship, um, which is important and beautiful. The more fundamental thing for me is the absolute joy of kinship. Mm. It's, um, it's one of the greatest joys in life to feel the profound sense of companionship that's around us all the time, everywhere, available. So on one level, we really need to know um, and understand our connection. On another level, it's um, our deepest source of nourishment. I had a, I was at a workshop a while ago, and there was a, a gentleman who was out on the land meditating. And after a little while, he said, he heard these words. He was looking at the trees and the rocks, and, and it said, um, include me. And it was the earth speaking to him, saying, include me. And then later on, I saw him walking with someone chatting back and forth, and I was just standing behind him, and he said, you know what? There aren't two of us here. There are three of us as you talking to this other person and the woman there's you and me and there's the earth the three of us here Mm. and he began to use that for the rest of the workshop and said what a profound sense of companionship it gave him so it was a mutual back and forth Um, it's a little more abstract to think of the earth but for me it's the same with the earth or the trees or the animals the animals are simply an easier entree for us because we're more like them, more, we understand them more easily. We, the, the nervous systems connect more easily. Mm-hmm. Um, so my most profound initiative is, as you said, um, uh, I really think it's important to think in terms of, it's not an elegant term, but win-win. 
if we understand our connection and feel our connection, then everything changes. All our decisions change. How we live change changes. What we consume. Um, one of my other favorite lines is, uh, first is to expand a sense of community to include all living life. And that means expanding our sense of community, just the same as we would to human community. So wherever we live, we understand that the trees and the, and the, and the water and the birds and everything are vibrant members of our community to be treated and respected as such. So that's a, a, a philosophical and a practical kind of thing because actually it leads to a whole different way of treating the land. And then based on that, we would have a whole lot less environmental problems and emotional problems. There goes my psychology part, if you will. It's so healing and nurturing and sustaining to feel the connection with all life and not just the abstract all life and then with each specific life form, any particular tree or bird or worm or fish or whatever it is you come in contact with. So to try to help people get that sense, which you do in, in a different way, or maybe it's not so different, to get that sense of connection and then to understand the gorgeous flow that comes back and forth between you and any other living being once that connection's been opened um, and how healing that is and how exquisite that is and how what a win-win it is because if we feel it, we get healed and we take care of the earth more different, differently, quite differently. That's beautiful. Well, quite literally, the scientific part of you, uh, more and more information is out there uh, discussing the conversation around intelligence in all living organisms. And you did the great blog about the slime mold. I must have posted it four or five (laughs) times because because one of my um, somatic educators, Emily Conrad, who is considered a pioneer, um, she she used to talk about the slime mold. And she used to say um, that when you take away the history, and she's talking somatically, when you take away the human history and you take away the stories and you go underneath, the slime is still moving. (laughs) And, And... and that was her way of saying, you know, we have access to this deep biological creative intelligence. We are uh-huh. part of that. And we could. And then I saw your slime mold blog and it was like, here it is, you know. And so I want, I'd like you to speak a little bit to everyone around this innate creative intelligence that you have so connected with all life forms. Um. Well, I love slime molds. What can I tell you? <laughs> um, so I, I used to watch them as a little kid. They'd, they'd fascinate me because I'd be in my backyard and I'd see this thing that looked just like a bunch of slime and then it would be in a different place and then it would be in a different place and it was so slow but it was clearly moving and it was this weird kind of jelly thing and then suddenly it would stop moving and it would turn into something hard and it was like what is this thing between life and non-life because it looked like it turned into like almost a stone and it just fascinated me and 
then I saw an article, I don't know, a while ago about a, a guy talking about the intelligence of slime molds, and I thought back to that utter fascination I had. And the fascination, I think, was an intuitive connection, not just of the um, interconnection between worlds, plant, animal, moving, not moving, um, but why was I so fascinated with it? The particular article I first read was saying a slime mold, this little blob of of cells, first of all, they come together, they're single, and then they come together into a whole cell, a large cell. They can actually plot a transportation system. If they put a slime mold on a map of, of Tokyo, in effect, they can actually plot the most efficient way to get to treats that they put around it. Um, even better and more efficient than the um, trail, the uh, transportation system of Tokyo. <laughs> um, they can actually outperform computers in certain areas. And this is a, is they got no nervous system, um, no brain, that just in our sense, but the native intelligence of how to find their way to food um, is incredible. They also show a capacity to learn. They can um, find something that's noxious but not um, toxic to them, and they can first send out a little little tentative finger, so to speak, and test it out and pull back because it's awful, but there's food on the other side, so they can test it again, and they can figure out that it's actually not dangerous, and they can overcome their resistance to it, and then go over and get the food. So there's several le levels of different types of intelligence in just that. It's just so amazing yeah, because we, we think of intelligence as in our heads, and it's not in our heads, and it's not in our nervous system. Um, yeah. It's uh, in an octopus, for example, for those of who read that wonderful book, The Soul of the Octopus. I another, did read that book. Yeah, and there's another book about octopuses, too. Um, the, the, the brain is uh, diffuse around... Yeah around the uh, body and that there's also that the different pathways to consciousness and intelligence ours is one with the great apes another is through the cetaceans another you know the dolphins and the whales another is through um the parrot and corvid family uh like ravens can outperform chimpanzees in certain tasks and the octopus got to its high level of intelligence, an incredibly, totally different pathway. So it's not a nervous system. It's not human. It's not apes. Um, if you start to go back through the evolutionary pathway and see these different pathways to different types of high intelligence, um, you begin to go down and down and down. If you want to go th think of the idea of up and down the evolutionary tree, though that's not a good way to think of it, um, you, you end up to this, as a fundamental intelligence. And then some years ago, I was reading a book, trying to understand it because it was physics, which isn't my major skill. And at the end, he was saying, and this was maybe 20 years ago or 30 years ago, it seems that intelligence is a property of the universe. And since then, there's more and more and more evidence that that is true. And life is one expression of that universal intelligence enhanced in many wonderful ways on our incredible earth. But intelligence, the nature of life is creativity. And the nature of the universe, I think, is creativity, expressed in intelligent adaptation. Um, and then the higher levels of 
uh, spirituality and in simply enjoying one another and enjoying life. That's the scientific it's, side. It's, yeah, it's it's amazing. <laughs> the the um, as I as I'm focusing on this book, it's basically about uh, encouraging the people in my profession to change the language of body um, from the the dogma of anatomy to an objectivity to living mm. process. Mm. So. So the idea is that uh, one of the things I've learned through the core intelligence of my own self is that when I enter, when I kind of go below the nervous system, which uh, I learned to do by working with Emily Conrad, because she was very adept at entering what she would call the fluid system, which is pre-nerve. And when when you learn to be able to kind of dissolve your idea of being human, and she used the octopus as a, a living way that tissue really moves and mm. that our tissue can become more fluid. Uh, we can be more adaptable and that it changes the way we think mm. and it changes the capacity for innovation. Mm. And so my work was very touched by hers because I kind of, um, I got the idea, but I didn't know how could, how could we as humans kind of deconstruct um, the, the, what, what has been called the colonization of our soul into this kind of being an object and being a thing and seeing nature as out, everything else but us and, mm-hmm. you know, the deconstruction of something like that. And, and so um, the, this, this tissue called psoas that somehow I became known to know a lot about was basically going back to a, a, a very fluid messenger of the axis of, of the human organism and being able to reenter this simplistic, in a way, uh, uh, neutral territory of being, being instead of doing, mm. you know, just simply being. And, and so as I, I've played with this, one of the things that it has brought me to is I get also reading things like physics because there's so many uh, biologists and physicists and mathematicians who to me are, uh, are new mystics. Mm-hmm. They, they're bringing in the unified you know, principles and the resonant fields and the living connections. And, mm. and so science is, um, science is kind of bringing in the spiritual aspect mm. and, and they're blending, they're coming together. And yet many of us have come from this old school of reductionist thinking and separation and we use language about you know, things attaching as if they're mechanical. You know, the psoas attaches to your 12th thoracic vertebrae and I say, then who attached it? Because <laughs> nobody attached it. <laughs> it. It grew out of a midline. You know, we're a spine-based organism and as a spine-based organism, everything comes from this very center of our, our being, the primitive streak or the axis so so one of my it's so wonderful to hear you talk about it because one of the things that I'm very aware of is the uh, need for nourishment that 
when we're connected to other species, we do tap into this broader, deeper, mm. nourishing experience that is such a gift. I mean, it's such an incredible gift. Um, and uh, and it's so humbling, you know, and yet so exciting. So I would love to have you talk about how did you learn to connect with all beings on their own terms? The answer isn't really very interesting. Um, I just always felt it. Mm-hmm. I don't think it was a learning. What it has been over my life is a deepening. But I can't really tell you how I learned it. Um, it was an immediate, I think it's an immediate connection that every child has. Yeah, an affinity? And, yeah. I mean, any living thing I would crawl towards. It was, and I think every child does that. For some reason, I didn't lose it. The, the draw was always very powerful. I mean, I'm living out here now. I live in a tiny cabin surrounded by a lot of wilderness and very few of the amenities of civilization. I also lived in the depths of New York City and enjoyed it. Um, But even as a young child, I would be going to visit the city or be in the city, and I'd say, there's nothing green anywhere, and I'd feel a sense of loneliness because I was surrounded by things that weren't living. So it was an affinity for life that I just always felt. And now, then I chose, so I have very few amenities. There's no library. There's no movie place here. uh, I have to travel far for any human culture, which I adore. I think human culture is just really one of the richest things we have. Um, But even more important, there's a connection to life. And in a sense... My life here is extremely stressful. I have to raise incredible amounts of money myself for something that nobody really understands in terms of traditional fundraising, like animals have souls. How do you get raise money for that? And uh, the enormous responsibility of all these lives here, um, and the demands are enormous. And yet, the land supports me. I feel supported. I'm, I'm energetic and can handle it all because I'm maybe for lack of a better word cradled that awareness has come over time but it's mostly by following I guess if I answered anything it would be that I listened and followed Um, I call it following my nose um, to what nourished me to what what seemed vibrant and alive What do the animals want us to understand? I asked this of a really interesting woman called Linda Bender a few weeks ago. And she said, and she's even more connected than myself because that she spends almost all her time with them as a wildlife vet. Um, and she said that, that we're disconnected Everything is just really so simple. Um, my partner, Jean, here says um, they're confused. 
why don't we connect with them? What's the, what's the matter with us that we're not connecting? Some time ago, I had a, a wonderful woman here called Penelope Smith, and um, she's a sort of like the grandmother of animal communication, and she was having a class sitting with some of the animals. I wasn't there at the moment, and she came running out. She was just so excited to, to find me and tell me the animals are just beside themselves. They're beside themselves because humans are listening to them, and it's gone around the world twice with the birds. <laughs> but the idea that we don't listen. We're not listening to them and their wisdom. So those two things, the listening and the idea that they're confused. And when someone uh, is quiet with them and goes, I think, to their level that you're talking about, um, beneath the human nervous system, um, they're ecstatic to connect. They want to connect. My own, my own sense is that life wants to connect with us, that we would be welcome if we enter a forest with the trees and the life there in a, in a connected the way you talked about and in a um, respectful, welcoming way, that we are welcomed, that we are wanted. We're part of life and we add what our unique thing to life is that we go in oblivious throwing stones, chopping down trees, picking flowers, uh, and then casting them aside, oblivious. But if we would go in with a sense of respect and connecting, we would be very, very welcome. The other part I didn't say earlier when I talked about um, the idea that the earth said, include me, because we do so much spiritual thinking that often it's in our heads and it's in the universe and we're not connected to the earth and the ground and the animals. We're not connected to a very source of life. And after that I was thinking, if I could summarize it, it's that the animals and the earth are lonely for us. It feels to me that one of the ways to get out of our heads is to go into the intelligence of the heart by actually literally sensing the field of my heart, which slows me down, which takes me out of imagination and, and centers me right in to an energy that feels um, uh, uh, able to organize my nervous system into some kind of coherency that allows me to receive the messages. Mm. And otherwise, I'm too chaotic. Mm. There's too much uh, chaos going on to actually hear those messages. And Stephen Bruner was one of the people who first, he, uh, book, one of the books he wrote on plants and how to, how to hear what the plant is telling you had to do with, with going into the heart. And I ended up using his book and just saying to people, if you change the word 
plants to sow as, you also access yourself that way through the, mm. through the heart of the matter, the heart of matter. Mm. And it feels like to me that that's the field of energy that brings us able to listen. Yes. The Heart Math does wonderful work on that, the Heart Math Institute, mm-hmm. if anyone wants to research that, and the heart field. And, yes, the, and the, the comment for coherence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the comment you made about coherence, exactly. Um, the animals are coherent. We are somewhat incoherent. Um, and my own feeling is it has something to do, among other things, with the incredibly rapid expansion of our brain that we're not quite balanced and coordinated yet um, and it makes it hard for us but then we have the civilization that is massively incoherent and, and fosters incoherence um, with constant constant input more than we can listen to and there's no, no sense of quietness and it's not it's connected to technology and business and, and not connected to roots in the earth and the pace of living things And it makes us lonely, lost, stressed, ill, and uh, just shame because I think we as humans have the most incredible potential to look after the earth in a loving way, and I don't mean in a, a patriarchal way, but to take care of it in a loving way, to express our creativity and our brilliance and our kindness. And it's, um, I hope we find our way. What would you suggest to people listening um, where where would you recommend that they begin? Wherever they are in the city or the suburbs or small town or out in the country? Sitting quietly with any living thing. Someone did research on a on a leaf recently. They took a leaf and sadly took a razor blade and, and sliced it and then looked at what was in it. And the leaf was an entire community. It only looks like a leaf. It's got bacteria and fungi and uh, uh, small amoeba-type things in it um, that make up the leaf. And that's just a leaf. So the miracle of life and the miracles are everywhere. And it really doesn't... It's easier where I live here because there's a sense of peace and the wind and all that. But it can be done absolutely anywhere. It can be done with a blade of grass. It can be done with a goldfish. There was a gentleman who wrote once, a scientist who was lonely, and he was sort of a hardcore scientist. He said he swore when he came home that the goldfish moved to the side of the bowl where he was. And he began testing it out, and it did. It sensed the energy and wanted the communication. It doesn't matter what it is. What matters is what you said, is that you quiet down, become more coherent so their energy doesn't have to cut through the incoherence and you can begin to connect. So sitting quietly, even if it's five minutes, um, ideally you would do it a few times during the day so it begins to be more of your way of being, not just a practice you do in the morning, though that's a whole lot better than nothing. So being quiet with some form of life other than your own, well, no, that doesn't make sense. Being quiet with yourself is good, too. Being quiet with yourself, but another species. 
um, broadens us. Mm-hmm. So a form I, of meditation. I have an experience of working with a horse in which we were just there to be together and mm-hmm. knowing that the horse had a great experience with the heart and with the field of energy, that larger field of energy. And in being present to the horse, the horse came, her name was Noodles, and she came very close to me and she put her face next to mine and we exchanged breath mm. until I, I couldn't take it anymore. <laughs> I was the one, I mean, I was, I was sobbing. Just the amount of love and the exchange of breath it was like I didn't have the capacity to absorb. And I, I feel like that's part of what is missing for humans is this, it's almost like I need internal space to be able to absorb the amount of nourishment that is available. So sitting quiet is one of the pieces that I can understand because that can slow us down and I, and I feel like it can, um, uh, and I work a lot with grounding. How do we ground? How do we actually connect to the earth and feel our bones on the earth? So I work a lot with bones. But I, I'm also curious about this idea of capacity. Mm-hmm. To, to develop the uh, capacity to actually absorb. Because to me, it's like nutrition. You can take food in and digest it, but that doesn't mean you've assimilated it. Mm-hmm. And so this kind of longing, I, I work a lot with longing because mm. when someone accesses their longing, it seems like we have, we're a very active organism, so we kind of, like the slime mold, kind of reach out for this new relationship, and and but we have to have the capacity to um, to absorb it. And I'm wondering how you work with that, uh, or how you how how you see that as both a psychologist and a biologist developing a capacity to actually absorb the wealth of nourishment that is available to each and every living organism. I was pretty frozen as a child for most of us haven't had wonderful childhoods and I I didn't either. I was pretty frozen to protect myself. And then I was teaching and the woman I was teaching with um, was talking about energy work. This was many years ago. And she was a scientist, so I listened, but she was teaching energy work and it seemed really weird, this Reiki stuff and all that. I had a dog, and she had a, I lived with her while I was teaching, and she had a Reiki session, and my dog went over there and basically said, me. And I said, oh, maybe there's something there. And I had a, a couple of Reiki sessions and began to, I don't know how many years ago that was, a lot. And that first Reiki session... Not that, not that I haven't had many more, from a very talented woman, 
um, is still working on me, and it's like releasing the blocks so that there's a flow. And if there's no blocks, then the energy can enter and flow through and nourish and flow out without getting blocked in and getting too intense. Um, so it's a matter of breathing and letting it flow through is, is what I try to do. That's great. So I wanted to read something that you have said, and maybe you want to comment on it, but it's the mindful interaction with wild animals can shift human perception and thinking about the value of all life. And the imperative is to take responsible measures to preserve it. And I know that's what you're doing at Earth Fire Institute. Mm -hmm. So um, well, why don't you tell people, uh, I'll give the details of how to connect with Earth Fire. You're in Idaho. But tell people a little bit, how, how did that become your, your life? With, you said you lived in New York and... Like, yeah, I was raised, uh, my parents were very cultured Europeans, and I grew up in a home that was very highly cultured, music and books and stuff. Um, but the connection with nature was just always there. Um, I guess there are many places to, to start, but one of them is pure luck in the sense that I met someone who has trained um, wild animals for movies, who is now the, um, my partner here at Earth Fire. And he had some wolf puppies, and he invited me to help raise them. Um, they were needing to be bottle-fed, and they all got really ill and required intense, um, intense care. There were seven puppies, and they were really, really ill and required to um, intravenous fluids every couple of hours. So by the time you finished with all seven, you'd start all over again. It was like five, out, five days of intense care. They all lived. And the bond was so t intense. And the beauty of feeling these living beings and their passion to live um, I said, my God, I've got to share this. Not, it was way beyond the love of the wolves, which was, was intense. Um, and I had lifelong, passionate, deep relationships with these seven wolves. Um, but I needed to share it. I guess in a sense, let it flow through me and out to others so they could see and share in the wonder. That was my first response, not so much to save wolves, though that would be a very, very, very close second. The first thing was a sheer wonder. And this goes back to, you asked me, um, what would I recommend people do? One is to be quiet. Another is to take the time to look at the wonder around you. It's a terrific way in. How the grasses blow in the wind, and the sound of the wind in the trees, or the wonder of a leaf excuse me, or the wonder of, uh, a, of a bird singing. Um, I think we close ourselves off from the wonder. We're so busy and we're so distracted. So to make a point, 
of seeing the incredible wonder and beauty everywhere. It's just everywhere. I had a, a, a deer who had three legs. And it was just one of the favorite little articles I ever wrote was like a little page called The Beauty of a Deer. And it was just a little white-tailed deer. There are millions of them. But there's something about that deer, and it wasn't special. It was that he'd been found by a roadside with a broken leg and when he was like only a couple of days old. And the woman had rescued him and then realized she couldn't keep him and brought him to us, but he'd bonded to humans. And when people came and visited the, the property and saw the deer, he, I swear he would begin to glow. And people would glow back. And I mm-hmm. thought, huh, I wonder if that's what it's like to live in a herd, just this glow mm-hmm. back and forth. And I think he emanated the glow because it was like an invitation to others to join his herd. And that's just an, what people shoot. And, you know, it's just a deer hit another deer on the road. But no, every single one, every single being, every single living thing is, in my mind, a, a being with its own qualities. And there's magic everywhere, and that just takes you right out of yourself. Mm. Mm. Beautiful. Can you hear my Jack Russell uh, Terrier? He's yes. very old and can't climb the stairs anymore. He's, he's joining the conversation downstairs. He goes, don't forget me. I'm down here and I can't get up the stairs anymore. <laughs> well, I think all life says, don't forget me. Don't forget me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so he's, he's chiming in on our conversation. <laughs> Tell people about uh, your change-making circle. Oh, um, so we're very small. And the most I can do to try to make change is um, reach out on the Internet and reach out through speaking. But I, I like to think of ourselves as a seed center for a new way of seeing I don't know if it's a new way of seeing things, but first, the way of seeing things the way we've been talking about. How do I spread this and multiply the effect of it when we're small? So I thought a nice way to do that would be to have people, whoever they are, um, they can either invite me personally so that we can have, I can do a short presentation with some beautiful videos and and stories and, and slides and have an intimate conversation in people's homes. But they have to be, a, it would be a rich, deep conversation of all of us deeply trying to understand, connect to ourselves, connect to nature, and then what can we do about it? That's always the end line for me, not just to help us grow, which is important, but what can we do to take the responsibility, as you said earlier, we must, that, that's the inevitable end of it, to take responsibility. Um, or else they can, um, we can connect online, and I, we can have an, an online video conversation with people gathered together in someone's home in an intimate, deep fashion to really discuss and explore. And then ideally, that would spread out for other, the people who were there to do it themselves elsewhere. So it would spread out the seed and it feels to me like I'm being nurtured from the earth to do this, and so it's through the earth, from the earth, through me, out to others, and through those others, out to others, in a, in a ripple effect. And I know I'm not the only one. 
I mean, there are millions of us who connect deeply. Yeah. So to, to try and um, activate that more. Mm-hmm. So I want, I want to get, before I open it up to questions, I want, um, I know you're encouraging people to spend time uh, on your website and have an extensive look. And as I told you before we began, I think I found you about six years ago, and I have no idea how, but I was very touched by the energy that I was feeling from the newsletter. Um, I read your blogs, and I'm inspired by your blogs, and sometimes, like I said, the slime mold one, I posted at least three or four times, because uh, working with um, the somatic the somatic organism, the, this human being that is me, um, uh, I have discovered that the more I can can dissolve my uh, the construct of being human and just mm-hmm. simply be, the more I have access to this incredible lush nourishment on so many levels uh, that is deeply, deeply supportive. So for, uh, just to kind of put it in perspective, in my work, for example, there's a lot of focus right now on trauma release and, um, and, and doing something to not be traumatized. And I had take a very different perspective because I feel like if, even if you got rid of all your trauma, you'd, you know, who would you be? That what human beings need right now is nourishment. And that as we become more and more nourished, we flourish. Mm-hmm. And the capacity of our creativity, that creative intelligence to think in new ways, to have spontaneous moments of creation, that uh, epiphanies and realizations, and that we become alive ourselves. We become less thinking of ourselves as somehow mechanical and mechanistic and rejoin the living, and, and uh, as you so poetically said, you know, the earth is longing for us. The mm. animals are longing for that. Mm. You know, they're confused why, why we don't mm. connect. So I feel like my work is very much on that, but I found an affinity from your website. So the website is earthfireinstitute.org. And... <clears throat> To tell you the truth, I was absolutely shocked when you told me your working budget and that it was $35,000 a month. And I know what my working budget is, and it's nowhere near that. And I thought, wow, and is that because you are literally a sanctuary, a wildlife sanctuary? And you've, yeah. got, a lot of, you've got a lot of critters to care for that have yeah. been injured or or need, need care, but they're also now part of your teaching staff, right? So They totally are. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so, um, so in that way, you are a nonprofit, which is great. Great to hear. And so I do encourage people to check out um, your website because it is a rich, rich resource. And I, I love your, your blogs. They're, they're always so perceptive and aware and nourishing in and of themselves. Oh, that's that's wonderful. Yeah, yeah, it's really really great to have that connection. 
So is there anything else you'd like to tell people about your work or I love the fact that you called it the animals are calling us to counsel, you know, and I feel like here we are, we're gathering and we, what's, what's next? You know, what is, what is the counsel? I think of all the childhood stories that talk about the, all the animals coming to, to counsel to have a, a moment to connect and talk and, and the trees are invited and the river and mm-hmm. the rocks. And so anything else you want to say before we turn it over to opening it up to any questions? Well, a quick comment about um, deconstructing our humanness. There's another mm-hmm. wonderful book. Um, I can't think of the exact title. Something like we're multicellular organisms, that 90% of us or so is not even us. It's yeah. other organisms. So we and ourselves are a living community with a consciousness. So we can de- deconstruct all the way back to the mitochondria and our cells and the other beings that are making ourselves up. It was just a, a thought I had when you were talking about deconstructing ourselves. Absolutely. In fact, we have, we have 90, it's something like we have more bacteria than we have human cells. Mm-hmm. So yeah. we're a community. So, yeah, we're a community. Each, each one of our bodies is a living community. And mm-hmm. as you do your work, I think, um, that, that would help people get into contact with that reality, which, which is very complementary to what I do. Um, the other thing I would want to say is what if, what if everything I was talking about is really true? that the earth is lonely for us, that the animals want to connect, that we'd be welcomed into a forest. What if it's true and what, how would we live our lives then? And for me, uh, from, the, from the gorgeousness of that feeling of being completely surrounded by connection and communication comes, if life is really sacred, what does that mean for how we live? It's a radical idea if all life is sacred because of what it means about how we live. It means we don't have build big houses. We use much less, consume much less. We're really careful about what we eat. We're careful about everything we do. Our life becomes full of care, caring for and thinking. And um, if we purchase things, we purchase it with care, so we don't just go and put money in. We're, we're putting care into how we're taking that money and using it to buy an apple that was raised organically in a particular area, and then how we're going to use the remains of the apple. So the whole feeling is an element of caring and what that does for us. So there's a magic of the what if it's really true, and what is it like to live a life that's full of deep care? Tell us about who some of your neighbors are and who, who your clan, the clan you live with. Well, I don't think of them as neighbors. I think of them as family. Yeah, that's what I realized. That's why I meant clan after I said mm. your neighbors. Yeah. Well, that's goodness. Who, who do I talk about? They are full-blooded beings, meaning if I choose one, the others will be jealous. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I can kind of feel them gathering around in her yeah. It's hard to say. This. There are lots of animal stories on the website. I put there a lot are. of them on They're there. They're great. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
this fairy tale, the, I called her fairy tale because she was so ethereal. She's barely here on the earth, a coyote. There's um, Huckleberry Bear Bear, very, very, very slow black bear. Oh. Uh, and the quick, quick, quickness of the wolves, quick intelligence, the quick energy, the even yeah. quicker energy of the foxes. They're so light, they barely touch the ground. Um, there's not time to go really into it. one story of one animal and do it do it honor. So I'm just trying to give a quick glimpse. One of the interesting things is like we have we had six bears, now we have five. How dramatically different each one is. And those seven wolf puppies that I first talked about from one mm-hmm. mother, so they're all one dramatically different personalities. So you have wolfness and then you have the individual wolf. You have bearness, and then you have the individual bears, and then you have coyoteness, and the individual coyotes. And it's a magical thing, the back and forth. What is it that makes a coyote a coyote? What, what's that coyoteness? And then there's a very specific coyote, where one is such a shy, delicate being, and another is just out there like a, like a movie star. Um, wow. Wow. Good story. You know, I, you have a retreat center. You want to tell people a little bit about what that means to have a retreat center? Well, we don't do too many because they're very intensive for us. Um, but we have a beautiful yurt, 30-foot diameter yurt that looks out on the Tetons. And we, we don't have regular visits because we're not a zoo. We don't want people to come and look at yeah. the animals. We want them to spend time with them and meet them as fellow beings. So the retreats are all based on spending time on the land and spending time with the animals. Um, and they may have different focuses. They may be more spiritual. They may be more artistic. Well, they're always spiritual, um, shamanic, or communication with animals, or writing. But it's um, with a deep respect and I ask people to uh, to read certain materials before they come so they're prepared. And another major factor of, the, of it is you're not coming to be healed. There are lots right. and lots and lots of places for humans to go and get healed. This place is, I couldn't say it's just for the animals. The focus is the animals because we've taken enough from them and it's time to give back. But in the process of coming here to, to meet them and give back, you do get healed, but it's a different focus. So you're not coming to take, you're coming to give. And then make a commitment to do whatever it is you can to help save space for them on earth. Well, I think that's the perfect place to end (laughs) our conversation. And I want to thank you very much for taking your precious time to and your energy. I can feel um, uh, the potency in your words, in your voice, in your presence, and uh, it's very nourishing itself. Thank you very much, Susan. It's my pleasure. This is what I need to do. Yeah. (laughs) And I look forward to uh, sharing this.
conversation with everyone else. And thank you for those of you who came in and listened live. And uh, I will be sending out a copy of this for everyone to share with their friends. And then it will be a podcast on Core Awareness website. So thanks, everybody. And thank you, Susan. Yeah, it was a delight to chat with you. Yeah. Good night, everyone. Good night.